Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Very glad you are with us. My guest today is the new chief of the Baltimore City Fire Department, Chief James Wallace. He was nominated by Mayor Brandon Scott in July and confirmed by the City Council in October. He is 54 years old. He began his career with the department 33 years ago and rose through the ranks as a paramedic, firefighter, battalion chief, and deputy chief. Since 2020, he served in the Scott administration as the head of the Office of Emergency Management. Baltimore is a city where a lot of fires happen. It has one of the highest per capita fire rates in the country. Chief Wallace is in charge of fighting those fires, facing shortages of both equipment and personnel, budget overruns, and the challenge of high 911 call volumes that is causing delays in response times. Chief Wallace is also overseeing a healing process of a close-knit department that is grieving the loss of three of their colleagues in a fire on Stricker Street last year and a fire in Linden Heights in October that took the lives of two firefighters. If you have a question or comment for Chief Wallace, you can give us a call, 410-662-8780, or email midday at wypr.org. And Chief James Wallace joins me here in Studio A. Good to see you, Chief. Good afternoon, sir. Thank you for having me, and happy holidays to you and your staff and, and all your listeners. Well, thank you, and happy holidays to you as well. I thought it would just be nice for folks to, to get to know you a little bit. Certainly, you are a known entity uh, in city government and in the fire department, having been there for three-plus decades. But uh, where are you from? Tell us about uh, where you grew up. So I, I, I was born in Baltimore. I actually grew up in Hartford County. Um, I, I received my my paramedic licensure and certification in in 1989. Immediately after I did so, I submitted one application, and it was to the Baltimore City Fire Department. And um, it took some time, but I was hired in 1990 as a paramedic and have have remained here. Um, I'm very proud. I'm still a paramedic even even after all this time. Um, but You've I've kept remained your here. certification. I ha- absolutely. I worked uh-huh. too hard to get it, and. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I still uh, I still have it, and I'm I'm just extraordinarily proud to to lead the men and women of this department, and 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 even more so work for the citizens of Baltimore. I've always been proud of of, of what I do, and and still am. So you were a paramedic, then you were a firefighter, and there's there's a distinction between those two, obviously. Uh, some people just are paramedics, right? Others are paramedic slash firefighters. Um, and from there, where did you go? How did your uh, ascendancy through the ranks? take place so i promoted to lieutenant in in 2003 um i i was out on the west side for a while but my my love was for always always was for for downtown uh the stedman house at lombard and utah street so um, i was able to work my my way back there um cumulatively i did 17 years in that firehouse Um, but as a lieutenant uh, i worked in the field for a while but then i was asked to provide some support to uh, the hazmat coordinator's office, and that's where I stayed. Uh, I, I made captain in 2009. I was still in the coordinator's office, and then when I made battalion chief in 2014, uh, the chief at the time asked me to uh, take over the special operations program. So in addition to hazmat, um, I assumed command of our technical rescue elements, our dive team, our hazmat team, and really be kind of finished what had already been started. We really unified all these individual teams into one extraordinarily strong service that today still provides um, just top-notch service to the citizens of Baltimore. 
So as the chief, as the top guy, what do you think your experience in the promotion, uh, your, your, your trajectory, you know, from lieutenant to captain to battalion chief, what did you learn personally when those promotions happened for you that will inform how you will uh, oversee promotions in the folks who are now working for you? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're currently looking at, at a lot of things with regard to promotions. I'll start there. Um, we're, we're looking at modernizing just at the, the study material, the testing material itself. In, in a lot of the books that we use, um, we're constantly updating internal directives, our manual of procedure. Um, some places call them SOPs. We call them MOPs, manual procedure. Uh, our training manuals, all those documents are constantly being updated, and all of that material, the, the external books that I talked about and the internal documents, are, are part of the, the, the testing in and of itself. Um, as I was coming up the line, I always elected to skip the next test. So as a lieutenant, I didn't take the next captain's test. You know, when I had the opportunity to do so, I didn't take it. Um, I felt very strongly uh, then and I do now that what I wanted to be myself was sure that, that I was strong and solid in the job I was in before I aspired to move on. So to hang it, Lieutenant, for a little bit before you start thinking about yes, captain. Sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. And you think that's good advice for uh, folks coming up now? I, I think it is. I, th- I think that anywhere, anytime you promote, really in any job, you know, be solid in the one you have. And if you are solid in the one you have, you're more likely to achieve that promotion to the next level because – you, know, you build upon your experience, you build upon your knowledge, um, and, you know, it, it just, it positions you to be a better leader along the way, um, you know, when you, when you work it that way. At least for me, that was the most favorable way to do things. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Chief James Wallace, the relatively new chief of the Baltimore City Fire Department. He's certainly no stranger to the department, which he's been associated with for the past 33 years. 410-662-8780 is our number, our email, midday at WIPR.org. So you talk about upgrading and, and updating the manuals that people read to uh, to get promoted to the next level. Has you know, You've been in it for three-plus decades. Has, has firefighting and the techniques used to fight fires changed that much in the, in the last 33 years? I mean, are there a lot of new innovations that you have to keep up with? There are innovations. You know, I, I think a good example is just the, the, um, the availability now of, of thermal imagery. In, in years past, when, when we would enter um, any type of smoke-filled environment or even when we were dealing with hazardous materials incidents where um, a chemical reaction may generate a very dangerous amount of heat, oftentimes that's just not visible um, to the naked eye. Thermal imagery has come a long ways now. Um, we used to each unit just or had a just a small thermal imager. It was kind of a a cumbersome box that we carry, and it was like looking at a little mini TV. It's come so far now that that we've been able to put thermal imagery on in our seated positions on apparatus, um, and it's small. It's very small. It's very handheld. It's very reliable. So you know that that particular technology it has come a long way. The the nine one one systems have come a long way. Um, in, in the EMS world, the delivery of patient care, that's constantly evolving. Um, the, there are a lot of really good techniques out there for, uh, for airway management now. 
and and things in the service generally speaking just continue to evolve and, and improve um, I understand uh, from the head of the, the firefighters union uh, told me that Baltimore is a town with a lot of fires um, Describe the scope, you know, how Baltimore sits in the panoply of maybe other cities around the country. But do we have, you know, uh, for a population our size, it's now under 600,000, uh, do we have a lot more fires than a lot of other places? And I know, for example, that uh, we are a frequent vision, uh, a frequent victim of arson uh, and set fires, incendiary fires. Um, is it worse? in Baltimore in that regard than, than in other places? Where, where do we stand? I think, you know, anytime we have a problem like that, it, it's, it, we're worse than anybody else. It's in our eyes, we're going to be worse than anybody else because it's our city, it's our job to, um, to, to, to mitigate those, those types of situations. Um, you know, that's why Commissioner Worley and I have worked very hard to try to put together um, an arson task force internally with uh, our Fire Investigation Bureau and his police arson investigators. Um, that's moving along very well. We are about to coexist in one office, and, and that is huge. Um, the other thing that we've seen uh, this year over last year is our, um, our, our percentage of of arsons has gone up we had 69 last year this year so far um, we've had 95. it it can be indicative of an increasing uh, problem in the city but i know it's also indicative of the fact that we are getting better we are getting better working with uh, police arson detectives our fire investigation bureau um, in some cases the state fire marshal's office and in in other cases also the atf we are getting better at cause determination, and ultimately, that's what we want to see. So, um, you know, and, and in comparison to other cities, yes, we, we do have more fires than a lot of other um, cities that are of, of, of comparable size, um, but we do have a lot of vacant buildings. Um, we, and there's something like twice as likely to catch on fire than a non-vacant building, right? Well, I, I think that it's... It's it's likely that they will. Um, I don't I don't know what that actual you know percentage or you know greater percentage is, but you know that's it's it's an issue, right? It's it's an issue that um, we have several programs that are going on now. Um, one that we're very proud of that's actually grant funded to to put um, our people in the field working with DHCD and working with other city agencies. It's the housing department. Housing department. I'm sorry, Department of Housing Community Development. To, to actually um, not only identify and secure them, but to maintain a database where um, housing has, their, has a database that we have a link to, we have access to. We have the ability internally when we find them, where we enter them into our computer-aided dispatch um, system. What our CAD does, CAD for short, is when our apparatus responds, CAD will post up on the page the address, the units responding, building information, but it'll show if a, if a building's been marked um, code x-ray, which means, you know, ex extremely dangerous in some cases in, um, in a situation where imminent collapse is possible or just vacant. Um, so our people see that right away, but they also have access to a link from DHCD 
uh, there's real good information transfer back and forth on on vacant housing code X-ray initiatives right now. Did that come out of that horrible tragedy at the Stricker Street fire? Uh, because I know that was mentioned in the memo that uh, came out uh, after that and after the report, uh, the internal investigation report was published. But is that the kind of thing uh, that, that grew out of that terrible tragedy where those, those three firefighters were killed? Those initiatives have certainly grown um, out of that. And, you know, to the point I, I had mentioned a, a grant-funded initiative, we actually received, uh, just recently received, uh, just over $800,000 from FEMA to fund an initiative where we're paying our people um, on overtime to come in. They, they staff um, small SUV uh, vehicles, and they go and they do the vacant building research. They mark code X-ray buildings, but they also um, do smoke detector or smoke alarm uh, initiatives where we will go around and either um, answer 311 calls for smoke alarm installs or they'll have a, a pre-designated area that they actually visit and they will start canvassing the neighborhood um, offering not only smoke alarms but just home safety tips uh, evacuation tips uh, and things like that to to the citizens of Baltimore. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding, for example, that the uh, internal investigation after the Stricker Street tragedy revealed that the when the housing department identifies a house as vacant, uh, they put it in their system, but it doesn't automatically dump into the fire department's system so that you don't didn't necessarily have access to that information right away. That seemed like a like a tech fix to a to a layperson like me that was relatively easy to implement. Yeah, there, and there even today there still remains some some uh, I'll just call it manual movement of data back and forth. Um, you know, as as often is the case in the in the tech world, if you will, oftentimes systems and platforms just they they don't talk. So we have a an intermediary system right now where that information flows in both directions to that system and then it gets transferred and kind of traded if you will um, from one agency to another so that we can continue as we identify uh, vacants and, and code x-rays we can continue to build that list but also I, I think equally as important maintain it we have a caller on the line from Parkton Joseph welcome to midday with Chief James Wallace Hello. How are you? We're doing fine. Thanks. What's on your mind? I was just wondering because, as you guys actually were just talking about, was a lot of the fires happened in the Board of Housing and things like that in Baltimore. Um, are there any plans for the fire department and police units to collaborate and work together? Because a lot of the fires are in the high crime areas and things like that, so... All right. Thanks for that that question. You, know, you, you just mentioned some coordination uh, in the arson task force, for example, with the fire department, the police department. Right. And and thank you for that question, Joseph. The the simple answer is yes. Um, and I'll elaborate on it. There there are multiple coordinations right now that are that are occurring not only between fire and police, but again, um, housing, community development, and DPW. Uh, we meet biweekly. Uh, with with the deputy mayors, the fire department does it individually. The police do it individually. Um, the trend has been that we're now meeting together, and what we do is we take our data from certain zones of the city and we overlay it with police data, and we're beginning to see comparisons 
um, in certain areas. We've become, and under under my leadership, we're going to become even more data driven. And it's it's very clear when you begin to start plotting things on maps, whether it's um, arson related fires, fires in vacant dwellings. Um, it's very clear you can begin to start seeing patterns. So from that point, the initiative is not only to identify uh, where the vacant buildings are, but to further secure them. James Wallace is the chief of the Baltimore City Fire Department. We'll have more with Chief Wallace on the other side of a quick break. You are welcome to join us. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on the show tomorrow, a conversation about the crisis in the Middle East with Nathan Thrall. He's an American journalist who lives in Jerusalem. He's the author of a critically acclaimed book called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. Plus, we'll have a preview of a performance of the classic holiday ballet, The Nutcracker, with Grammy Award-winning conductor Michael Repper. So that's coming up tomorrow. If you've just joined us today, my guest is Baltimore's Fire Chief, James Wallace. He's been with the department for more than 30 years. He's been the chief, officially at least, for about three months. And you are welcome to join us, 410-662-8780. If you have a question for Chief Wallace, you can email us as well, midday at wipr.org. With the arsons that you've been investigating, and you talk about how there's been an increase in those, is there a common thread? Are you finding the reason, the motivations for the the arsons being um, common uh, from one to the other? Uh, and is there, you know, are there, there there trends about that kind of thing? Is this insurance fraud? Is this people uh, hoping to harm somebody else? I mean, uh, and if you knew why people were doing this, would that uh, you know, give you some information to help prevent them. No, I, I don't know that, you know, in the absence of, of arrests and prosecution, that it's, it's always easy to find out what that motivation is. Um, what I can tell you is it's, it's not limited to vacant buildings. And it, in fact, it's not always a structure fire. And when we see that, it could be anything from a trash can to, to a small pile of, of, of debris somewhere um, to vehicles. You know, oftentimes we will find uh, with vehicle fires, when when the police are there with us, they will they'll run run the tag or run the VIN number, and we'll find that that vehicle's been reported stolen. So, um, you know, it's it's obviously you know that's that's a hard crime to um, to prove and and prosecute. But I think again, you know, what we're seeing with our data is we're getting better at actually determining. That, that these were arsons as opposed to, um, you know, a cause determination of undetermined or still under investigation. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always a moving target when, when we begin to deal with those, when we begin to deal with arsons. And I, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, the, the targets are specifically vacant homes. Obviously, they bring about a lot of significance, especially when you have occupied homes either within the block or even worst case scenario, on either side of a vacant. That that obviously raises, you know, the concern. 
course, um, it's no different here in Baltimore than it is uh, across the country. The, the vast majority of calls that you get for the fire department are actually not for fires. They are for EMS situations. Um, so how is your uh, experience as a paramedic, uh, and, and, and w- how would you describe your, your sort of vision for the future of, of you know, what, what kinds of services and the way the services are, are delivered in that regard? Sure. And when I, when I came into the department, we had 18 medic units on the street. We're up to 30 now solid. And, um, and we have critical peak time units, and, and we also have support from um, an outside contract agency. The call volume has, has skyrocketed. Uh, we were always advanced life support um, when I was on the street. And, and by that, I mean they were paramedic level. Uh, they, those are the people that can run the EKGs, the, the, the heart monitors, um, uh, a, a broad list of drugs they're able to give, advanced airway support and things like that. We're now what we call a tiered system where we have advanced life support and we have basic life support. Um, our basic life support people are, are EMT level, still very critical uh, piece and component of, of EMS delivery in the city. But they're going to see that lesser degree of severity when it comes to um, patient care. We have uh, we currently are we have several initiatives that are in place. Um, I want to initiate the delivery of whole blood in the field. Uh, we we use IVs now, um, and they're they're a good start. But oftentimes in trauma cases and other cases where patients they need blood, they need blood replacement. We're moving towards a program where we're going to be delivering uh, whole blood in those most critical situations. Uh, we're onboarding a couple of new uh, drugs now for, for patient care, and these things don't happen overnight. We have to go through uh, MEMS, the Maryland Institute for Emergency Medical Services Systems, who's our governing authority, and you know, to be able to institute these programs. Uh, and then the final thing we're looking at is actually taking our paramedics off of the transport units and going to what's commonly known as a chase car model. And what that'll look like is uh, the medic units that we still have out there that are advanced life support will begin to downgrade those to basic life support. They can still treat and transport, but bringing our paramedics back, putting them on um, like SUV style vehicles with advanced life support gear and strategically looking at focusing our people where they're needed most. The system that we have now oftentimes sends paramedics to where they're not needed. They don't need that advanced life support element. We can handle that call with a basic life support. What we're looking at is is overcoming the, the ratio of ALS to BLS calls in the city and just being very scientific, data-driven, and very strategic about how we assign our advanced life support uh, personnel and we do believe it's going to cut down on our at hospital times. Um, I believe it's going to cut down on provider stress. I believe it's also going to be a very good recruitment and retention tool. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest is Fire Chief James Wallace. Four one zero six six two eight seven eight zero is our number. Our email midday at wipr dot org. And Chief Wallace, 
the allocation of resources is such an important challenge for you because you are down when it comes to staff. You're down when it comes to equipment. You've got challenges uh, about the physical infrastructure of the fire stations. Uh, you've got budget problems. You've had run deficits now uh, for several years because it, a lot of folks are having to work overtime because you're so short-staffed. Uh, when it comes to, to attracting more people to the career of uh, firefighting, uh, how, what's your approach to that? How do you how do you get more folks to join the force? Well, we want to be as visible as possible in the community. Um, we have always uh, really strived to be out in the community, be at community events, uh, major events where um, we may set up tables and things like that to try to recruit people. What what I have pushed is that we come out from behind the tables and we, we actually get out and we engage um, in those large events. Um, I believe that we're, we're in a a time right now where we really can't wait for people to come to us seeking a job. We need to go out and market ourselves um, and sell the fire department for what it really is. We we have different career tracks inside of the fire department. We have emergency management. We have EMS. We have fire prevention. Um, we have logistics management. We have education. We don't have to have everybody that comes in who doesn't want to fight fire feel like that they're going to have to do that. We have different, and I think that's what's oftentimes not understood. And you know, you you take away that that overarching firefighting um, uh, persona, if you will, and it's it's more of an, an all hazards type department. So because we deal with a lot of things, we things on the harbor, uh, hazardous materials incidents. It's it's what we deal with is very broad, and um, you know we need to to do a better job of selling ourselves with that but the other thing that we're working on right now is a different way of testing and onboarding personnel um, we what i'm trying to do is compress down the the amount of time that our cadets spend in the fire academy but i'm also on the front end currently working with the uh, city department of human resources to onboard a contractor who can help us not only market ourselves, but with a lot of the testing process and and a lot of the on the, the a lot of the front end onboarding, if you will, um, we've been in talks with them. Um, I'm aware several cities that are comparable in size to us have a lot of success with them as well. So um, we're looking at making a change and and modernizing how we do that. Uh, I talked to a guy named Matt Costner, who is the head of the Firefighters Union. Uh, I was very happy to hear from him that uh, he and his fellow members are very excited about your appointment. They like the fact that you've been part of the department, that you know the city, that you know the department. Uh, they're very enthusiastic. Um, but he was telling me when he joined the force 23 years ago, there were like 7,000 people who are on the list of people who you know might want to take the test and, and go in, and that these days there's like 600 people. Um, you know, that little five-year-old kid who, who rides on the fire truck uh, at a certain event who, who says, I want to grow up to be a firefighter, it seems that there's fewer of them uh, now than there was, you know, 23 years ago. Um, how, do you, how do you rekindle that, 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 uh, that desire to serve and that desire to, to be in what is uh, certainly a very exciting uh, line of work, but also an incredibly dangerous line of work? It is. And I, and I think, you know, again, we, we really have to improve on how we market ourselves, really get ourselves out there. Um, I, I do believe that uh, several things that this uh, contract company that we're speaking with right now has the ability to help us do that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult because 
since there is such a shortage and since it's not limited to Baltimore City, it's not limited to Maryland, it's really not even limited to the East Coast, it is a national problem in emergency services. It makes um, recruiting much more competitive because we are all trying and vying for a, a smaller pool of people that are actually interested in doing this. So um, we have to develop the competitive advantage in that, and, and that's what we're striving to do right now. And it's it's contributing to busting the budget, isn't it? Because you're paying so many people overtime that you go over budget, you know, uh, more times than not. Um, what is the status of the, the budget of the fire department now, you know, looking towards uh, the, the next, we're about halfway through this fiscal year and, and looking towards the next one? Yeah, I, and, and I don't have the exact numbers. Ironically, we have a meeting later this afternoon with, with finance just on that. Um, our, our overtime is is very concerning. It's very concerning to me. Um, and unfortunately, until we can get that staffing up and begin to absorb people into some of those positions, it's going to continue to be a challenge. The good thing is is we are um, we're in the final processes of formulating an academy list. We're hoping to be able to start sometime mid to late January. And I'm very optimistic that we're likely going to have a list of candidates that will start right behind there. Our goal is to put between 50 and 70 in right away. Um, obviously, I prefer the high end of that range. But we, we believe, just based on some of the preliminary things that, that we've done with the current hiring process, that we're, those numbers will be favorable that's not going to solve the problem, and that won't be the end of the day once we have this list. We will continue to work as we are now in preparing and better positioning ourselves to to be able to carry that on. You know, it, it's people get tired of hearing the excuse of COVID, but we had to shut our academies down during COVID, and, and it's been an extraordinarily hard challenge to recover from that gap because you 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 just get that flow of candidates coming in you kind of have an idea of how many people are going to retire we have a list as you said um, historically thousands of people on a list that doesn't happen anymore Um, you know i think out of this last testing scenario i think we we came out with about a thousand and then through the process, they begin to weed down. So um, it is a challenge. And it's not just people. It's equipment, too, isn't it? It is. Uh, Mayor Scott has told me on more than one occasion uh, that, you know, when it comes to, like, DPW, part of their issue is that the trucks that they're ordering and they have the money to pay for are on back order. You, you just can't get them. Is that the same situation with the fire department? Are you concerned about the impact, uh, you know, the day-to-day impact on safety? Uh, are there enough trucks to uh, and enough equipment to, to service the, the high call volumes that, you know, we've been talking about. Yeah, and our, our equipment, you know, our, the status of our equipment, it, it varies day to day. We, um, we, have, um, we have equipment in reserve, but we also have a, an equipment replacement plan. So we are actually still um, in the process of waiting on equipment uh, back through FY 2020, FY21 money. Um, that's just not been delivered yet. Supply chain has has been 
a big problem for the vendors. And it's not only So when we talk about COVID, they haven't caught up yet either, it sounds like. It's been difficult for them as well. And, you know, when we when we refer to, to equipment, it's not just the newly built apparatus that, that we struggle with. Sometimes it's parts. There may be parts that are critical to the operation of the equipment um, and critical to the safety of those that are using the equipment that if they're not in stock, that apparatus goes down, it can't be repaired. So it's, it's, it's kind of a two-pronged problem when we, we begin to talk about apparatus and equipment. It's, it's manufacturing, but it's also sustainment. Uh, in our last couple of minutes here, let's talk a little bit about fire prevention, the holidays coming up. People have trees, they have lights, they have that kind of stuff. Um, what's your advice for folks when it comes to, uh, you know, staying vigilant and, and being safe? So so live Christmas trees, um, the, the one thing that we always recommend is, is that when you purchase a tree, you put it in, you, you put the bottom of the tree in a bucket of water for, for about a day. I think most people will be amazed at how much water that tree will soak up. This past summer was extraordinarily dry, not only in this region, but, you know, up and down the East Coast. Um, so, you know, we can safely assume that those trees are going to be dry. So we, we not only want um, your listeners to to put the base of the tree in a bucket of water for a day, but to maintain you know, once they put it in the keep tree stand, always keep it full. Yeah. And you know, it's you really be surprised at how much water they use. Um, with regard to Christmas lighting, um, we we strongly recommend that that lights that are that are UL Underwriter Laboratory certified be used. Those lights have been tested, and um, that's that's huge because if you if you combine bad lights on a very dry tree, obviously you know it's a recipe for disaster. Um, and the final two things I would say is uh, any any electrically powered devices, always inspect the cords and make sure the cords aren't frayed. When those cords begin to get frayed, that electrical current is actually exposed to the surroundings. Um, and then carbon monoxide is, is always a huge thing coming into the winter. Um, anything that's gas-powered, gasoline-powered, natural gas, or even um, home heating oil, Always inspect it. It can emit carbon monoxide. Um, have and there carbon, are carbon monoxide detectors as well. There are detectors out yeah. there. We strongly recommend they be in the home as well. Yeah, we can uh, have time for one quick call from Laura in Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with Chief Wallace. Hello. Um, I just wanted to tell the chief how amazing the Baltimore City Fire Department is and the EMTs who work with you all. Um, it's because of them that I'm alive today. Um, I was in a serious car accident and sustained a broken neck. And um, if they hadn't taken me out of the car the way they did and transport me the way they did, I would have been totally paralyzed or dead. So it was a life-changing experience and I have such a special place in my heart for all of the folks um, in the Baltimore City Fire Department. Well, ma'am, thank you so much. First and foremost, we're we're obviously glad um, that that you were able to recover from your incident, and um, our our all of our personnel, from our civilian personnel, our 911 dispatchers, through our EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of them strive to deliver a, a top level, top notch. Uh, degree of care day in and day out, but it's it's great to hear from you. It's it's great to hear that you recovered, 
Uh, but thank you so much for your compliment. All right. Thanks for that call, Lauren. It sounds like you're okay now, and we're delighted. God bless. That's terrific. Baltimore Fire Chief James Wallace. Good to see you, Chief Wallace, and uh, please come back and keep us surprised at what's going on at the department. Yes, sir. Thank you for having us. Coming up, a theater review with Jay Wynn Russick. Art Centric has a new production of Cinderella, and we'll hear about it after a quick break here on Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 881 WYPR.